Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Hello, welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. And this is another in our Sundance Film Festival podcast, where we're talking about the wonderful independent films at Sundance in Park City that we're seeing every day, and also other goings-ons or relevant highlights, local sites, that sort of thing. Um, For this podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by... Uh, Sam Adams, uh, Senior Editor at Slate. Uh, Sam, this is your first time on the podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, and also joined by... Devika Girish. I'm the assistant editor at Film Comment. And Sam, you've you've journeyed... You're Philadelphia-based, is that correct? That is correct, that is yes. Correct. Um, I just always like to establish people's geographic origins before we start. It's Inform important. a mental picture yeah. if you're <laughs> listening right. at home. Yeah, if, you, if you're playing along at home with your scorecard, with your map, you're putting a pin in where everyone is from, that's what you can do. Um, Sam... You want to tell us a bit about how your festival has been, what your sense of the festival is just generally? Uh, yeah, it is early in the festival. Uh, it's been going reasonably well for me so far. I have not, you know, immediately fallen head over heels in love with anything yet. I'm not quite at the point in the festival where I start getting impatient and mm. you know, trying to make that happen um, or finding out who else it's already happening for. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a fairly congenial year thus far. And and just this might be interesting for listeners to I mean being here as 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 a um, as a Slate staff member what and then Slate being not a a cult not a film specific outlet mm-hmm. uh, more of I guess a culture and politics outlet so where does what does Sundance mean to Slate? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it, and it's something well. It's something that's evolving a little bit as we sort of experiment with, you know, covering the festival in different ways this year. I mean, our readers are definitely looking for, you know, some of the same things that are people looking for, just kind of what the hot kind of breakout titles are. You know, Slate is a site that has, you know, politics coverage is a huge part of, of what is driving the site now. So we're definitely we're just very interested in, um, you know, documentaries or fiction that touches on sort of political themes. So something like, you know, Taylor Swift taking of a, a Stand Against Trump um, is going to light up some dials. There's a yeah. documentary about the sexual assault allegations against uh, Def Jam um, President uh, Russell Simmons. It's going to be, I think, a, a pretty big deal for our readers this year. Hmm. Um, and we'll see what else emerges from the scrum. Let's dive into that scrum anew. Um, I like the word scrum. Good word. Um, and I don't know. I thought the first big film um, that we could talk about is... Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, directed by Eliza Hittman, whose previous films were Beach Rats and It Felt Like Love, uh, previous features. Um, And so this, for me, was a movie I was really looking forward to seeing, and and I'm glad to see it have a pretty big platform, like a 
opening night slot on a, on a weekend. Um, and um, Devika, um, you, you've just seen it. I yeah, uh, a few hours ago. ago. Yeah, um, tell, I liked it a lot. Us, tell us a bit about what the movie is about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll have to forgive me if my teeth chatter. I'm very cold. <laughs> Uh, you know, despite its name, this place is not sunny. There is no dancing in Walt thus far. <laughs> it's it's good you've pointed that out. Yes, I, I people was... get the wrong idea. False advertising <laughs> yeah. of the sort. Yeah, yes. Just, just, tangoing just around. so everyone knows, if don't don't follow these illusions up the mountains. Um, coming to never rarely, sometimes always. Um, I thought it was a very kind of interesting continuation of her previous film, Beach Rats. Um, in the sense that it's also focused on the life of a teenager um, who is going through some some turmoil that has sort of larger implications. In this case, in Beach Rats, it was a young man, a closeted young man, um, who was kind of contending with his sexuality and uh, trying to come to terms with being interested in men while hanging out with uh, having this group of friends in Coney Island, like this really macho, uh, you know, your typical, I guess, beach rats. Uh, and then in this film, it's a 17-year-old girl named Autumn who in just like very quickly in the first 10, 20 minutes of the film discovers that she's pregnant. And uh, the film then sort of follows her as she and her cousin figure out how to get an abortion and they basically make a trip to New York to go to the Planned Parenthood there because in Philadelphia where she's based uh, you can't get an abortion if you're a minor you can't get an an abortion without the consent of a parent so that's the that's the premise and it's sort of the movie I think is like a little more straightforward actually than I expected in the sense that it follows um kind of the motions of this process. It, I, I thought that it felt like part of a certain genre of movies. I, I like to think of them as like bureaucracy movies that follow a certain process um, in in all its kind of detail, you know, how a, a, an individual in society, what sort of hurdles or forms or uh, red tape and, uh, procedures ha- they have to navigate uh, when faced with like certain situations that are of public interest in in many ways and so it just kind of very closely follows the whole process of her first going to a woman's clinic in Philadelphia you know finding out she's pregnant kind kind of having this anti-abortion propaganda thrust into her face then googling like what to do next then booking a bus to New York they're uh, getting sent from one clinic to the other because of the how long she's been pregnant and so you know only certain centers can perform those services and finding out she needs to stay like an extra day and then she and her cousin have to figure out where they're going to be that night and you know it's like it just kind of keeps accumulating and the name of the film actually comes from a um, an exchange that happens in the Planned Parenthood office where a counselor asks her a series of questions about her sexual history and you have to answer the answers it's like multiple choice and you have to say never rarely sometimes or always and there are questions about whether you've experienced sexual violence um you know intimate partner violence and and those kinds of things which to me was the best scene of the movie uh really incredibly moving and beautifully acted as well um and i think overall 
this is a process that is worth kind of familiarizing people with, you know, really. And, and what I really liked about it is that it's not just about the process of getting an abortion. All the other things people don't think about. So the person I was watching the movie with, like my friend, when we got out, he said, you know, this made me realize you can donate to Planned Parenthood and that's a great thing. But then, you know, what about the people who have to find a place to stay because they've come from somewhere else and they have to stay there for two days? People, you know, sometimes they can't afford bus tickets, children who are, are young women who are kind of... Uh, you know, can't tell their parents what's up and, and call them for help. So I found it really illuminating in that way. And it's also beautifully shot by Helen Louvart, uh, who also shot Beach Rats. Uh, in, I believe this is also shot on film. And so it has like a really beautiful, sensuous, grainy texture. I think my one complaint, and I'd, I'd love to know if you guys agree, is that it felt like... An, like some some recent Ken Loach movies in in the sense that in kind of going through the process of this person dealing with this difficult reality, it keeps just piling on one misery after another. And some of them are contrivances, uh, especially like there's a... I mean, these two young girls just exper experience an endless series of predations, you know. Men are constantly preying on them and harassing them. And there's one particular... Uh, like sub kind of subplot about a young man who's like flirting with them on the bus and whose help they are later like forced to procure because they don't have any money and they're stuck in New York for a night. And it just got to a point where I felt like uncomfortable with the, I won't call, go as far as to call it misery porn, but you know, it was just like one after the other where I didn't know if that was necessary to drive home this 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 predicament that they were in yeah i mean there's like a sort of issue movie quality to it that surprised me a little bit um being you know having seen some of eliza hitman's previous work i mean there's an interesting i mean there are a number of interesting tensions in this movie i mean i think it feels on the one hand like very loose and also very controlled you know that scene you mentioned um where um, she's, you know, sitting in the, the clinic in New York getting this questionnaire um, read to her. It's just it's just done in a single kind of static close up on the actress's face. And the the, um, the clinic worker who's reading the questions to her is just um, in voiceover. And it just like it kind of piles up on you question by question. And you realize like, oh, like they're not going to cut. And she's just going to like act this whole thing the whole way through. And it's um, she's going to kind of answer some questions very easily and not answer some other ones and eventually kind of get to, you know, some sort of truth that the movie's been building up to. And it just it is a great job of kind of uh, building up to those things without necessarily making you aware that they're going that way. I mean, it it is definitely um, a pretty grim um, view of. Uh, sort of, you know, gender relations in general. Um, the the protagonist and her cousin are actually there's actually they've been sort of they're in like the central somewhere in central PA, kind of the um, the Kentucky part of Pennsylvania, um, and they you know work at this grocery store, and when they go to sort of cash out their drawers, they have to stick the envelope through this um, you know window, and every time they do that, some unseen creepy guy behind there sort of like you know, latches his lips onto their hands when they're like putting their envelope through it. And it's just like, so, I mean, you just get like physical, like skin crawling from that. And those little, 
there are a lot of those moments and they do um they, they do start to feel like a little determinative um after a while but I, I think they're also like um they're they're definitely like very viscerally uh effective so yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean with the with that i just you know it's that that that's yeah that's a hard to shake image of of, of they're just trying to do their job and every single time they do it they're they're manhandled and molested basically and uh yeah i that that sort of thing and and the later um you know travails and predations i i kind of just took i don't know experience i was not i'm not directly familiar with but is probably unfortunately i don't know part of daily life for i don't know a lot of teenagers uh teenage women i don't know and i think it's just about and also just about coming from a place where a lot of the i mean especially if you live you know in a sort of more liberal community or a city or whatever like you kind of take the availability of some of these support systems for granted mm. and not mm-hmm. that you're going to go to your ob and get a pregnancy test and she's right. just gonna immediately going to hit you with oh now you're going to hear the most wonderful sound you'll ever hear your baby's heartbeat right. and and the, the like one line in the movie that really stuck out is her small town ob says to her uh, you know, oh, well, do you want to like have your baby with a wonderful couple that's like, going adopt it? And she sort of says, and, uh, and, she, and she goes, oh, are you abortion minded? And just that, uh, that's not a term I've ever encountered right. before because um, I'm not a teenage girl in a small town. Um, yeah. But and then she, you know, puts on the DVD with the guy who sort of starts like lecturing her about respect. For, yes. Right. I mean, and that's like, I mean, and that's obviously a thing that happens like all over the all over the place but i mean just that that sort of um to me at least that kind of like betrayal that you go to somebody for help and said they just hit you with this like propaganda dvd instead um and the you know the the contrast with the planned parenthood clinic worker in new york who's just like whatever your choice is it's fine but like we have to do this interview to make sure like it's your choice like you're not we don't want you having this child because someone's pressuring into do into doing it. we don't want you aborting the child because someone is pressuring you into doing it and just that um, you know, and that can feel like a, that can feel, I guess, like its own kind of like propaganda, I guess, but I guess it, maybe it's just his propaganda that I happen to like deeply agree actually, with. Yeah. Um, and so I'm fine with, but yeah. yeah. And, and that actually, that exchange is partly also so moving because of what you're, what you're saying, um, is that she's coming from an environment where relationships have maybe not ever been put in those terms. Right. And, you know, that's something like when you do these kinds of any kind of OBGYN, uh, you know, process, you have to like go through these questions and like that clinical language gives you that sudden remove mm-hmm. that many people like, I may never have considered like relationships and intimacy to have, you know, what they might look like to an outside observer who views them as exchanges of power. And I thought that, again, that was so moving because you could see that suddenly play out on her face um, and her kind of grasp that there is this kind of language that can be imposed on her experiences and it clarifies them in a way that's very frightening. Um, And I have to say, I think uh, Hitman is really so skilled at finding young performers um, because these girls, they and the other kind of young people they meet, they actually feel like people of that age and they are so spontaneous in the way that they are. Even though this is such a film about like repression too, and so was Beach Rats, it's like it it felt extremely natural to me. And um, and I, I loved 
the sisterhood of the two main characters and that completely like this unspoken sort of we're going to pack a bus we're going to going to go i'm going to walk around traipse around with you no matter what yeah um right i mean we may not even want to like spoil the specific context but there's a moment near the end of the film where they kind of like grasp hands yeah. and it's just like just that gesture of you know solidarity is so like yeah. subtle and moving um yeah yeah and i mean that detail and and something about the scenario generally made me think of this as a kind of American counterpart to four months, three weeks, two days, um, except it's not in the kind of, I mean, it's, it's not a black market thing, but it is something they have to leave their usual, like, um, I, I don't know, environment to, to do. And, and they're, they're breaking rules of their, you know, Right. To, to, to do so um, I mean one other thing about this I want to say that I just love that it captures it's not really related to the issues but it just also like really nails and this is in the performances too but like what it's like to be a 17 year old going to New York City for the first time and just like what is a metro card like how which way do you put your dollar bill into the machine like just the total yeah. con- like how does it like where do the stairs to the subway yeah. go? Like that I, total confusion. I think it really just nails in this wonderful yeah. way. And I've, yeah. I've definitely been there just coming here as a young person and um, not even knowing like how, how do you get on the uptown side of, of the things and just, yeah. And yeah. there's that shot of her um, autumn kind of stepping out of the subway station and there's like, like a gentle pan or something. And you see the city dawn on her face or the city or I guess more, more like port authority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it it really captures that wonderfully. I did think that that part of the film, though, when they're in New York, in New York City, it had some like logical loopholes. They're not important to the film, but like I don't know. There were like some scenes where I was like, "Is their phone suddenly dead now?" Or you know, why are they not able to contact each other for this particular stretch of the film? Or why the their parents have not been calling them more or wondering what's happening even though there's a moment in which she calls her mother and then hangs up and i just can't imagine a mother not like literally you know setting your phone on fire <laughs> after I think, my biggest like plausibility issue was there's a scene near the end where they go to a bowling alley and her cousin just like almost throws a gutter ball i think she knocks down like the seven pin and i just feel like teenagers in a small town in central PA are going to be good bowlers because like <laughs> what else are they going to do for fun so it was fine yeah. <laughs> I call bullshit on that you I call bullshit <laughs> on that yeah um, well that uh, uh, well, uh, yeah while we're mentioning other other details um, one I mean just one thing that I liked was the, the opening sequence is a series of school kind of performances uh, and the main character does one which is a song uh, a cover of a song by the Exciters, but before that they have like a very traditional looking like little dance number that has it looks very fifties and just kind of reminds you that in some ways like American morality is still pegged to the fifties. Um, the other interesting thing about interesting thing about the Exciters song is that that's like the third or fourth movie I've seen in the past two days that is using in some you know critical metacritical way a a like piece of 60s girl group music um anyway that's never rarely sometimes always uh which is coming to theaters um march maybe march which is coming to theaters in march 
Biofocus features, indeed. So let's talk about another movie that has gotten quite a bit of attention, uh, and that is Zola. Zola, directed by Janiska Bravo. And previously here uh, with Lemon. Um, Not a film I loved, but I was quite curious about this one. Um, Sam, you want to give a crack at uh, the plot? (laughs) log line for this one uh, i can try i mean could, we could do dramatic reading of the uh, or, or source material yeah i'm gonna do this in in 140 character chunks um <laughs> this movie is uh based on adapted from uh numerous sources but the origin is a uh, approximately 144 tweet uh viral twitter thread from 2015 um <laughs> Also, like also a journalistic age. article about the author of that thread and the, who gets a sort of as told to credit. And the script is written by Janiska Bravo and uh, Jeremy O'Harris, the, who's best known, I think, at this point as the playwright behind uh, Slave Play. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of like people and sources and talent converging on this sort of outlandish, maybe sort of possibly slightly true tale about um, <laughs> two strippers like going down to... Uh, Tampa to um, make some money and the wheels coming off that trip in like every possible um, manner imaginable. Yeah. And I, it, I mean, it's probably not a spoiler to say exactly how we can get to that. I mean, given that it's on the uh, public record in uh, small chunks. Um, but, uh, well, well, Devika, you, you, what did you think of this? Um, I don't quite know yet. Yeah. I had a great time watching it, I think. Um, it's really smart and well-directed. And when it actually, when it opened the first kind of 20 minutes, I thought, this is everything I wanted from Hustlers and didn't <laughs> get, you know, because it just opens with these two women meeting each other. And it's instantly so hyper-realistic and stylized and feels like a Twitter thread, like you know, being enacted. And I think that's something that uh, Bravo has really managed to accomplish, which is capturing the dramatic style of a Twitter thread, which I, I, I don't think that I've seen very successful. I think that's been tried a lot um, lately, kind of capturing the energy of social media in mm. in, a, in visual or filmic ways. And this film really does that. There's um, a lot of uh, like timestamps are are in the form of or have the kind of style of um, iPhone, like the iPhone clock, like the way your mm-hmm. iPhone shows time. And there is a dick montage that features some Instagram or, or, or kind of like light swipe. affectations. Yeah. And, and yeah. well, uh, I'm, I'm like getting too far into the details. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it, it kind of starts off like this. Um, kind of portraying their life as strippers and how they get to know each other and it's all really sexy and stylish and performed just excellently by um, Taylor Page and who plays kind of the lead and she's the stand-in for Ajia Zola King who wrote the Twitter thread and Riley Keough who plays this white girl this white stripper that that befriends Zola and and she has this outrageous black scent and it's just 
uh, I don't know, it's just such a ridiculous caricature of a person. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and, and that part was, you know, immediately drew me in. It was, the dialogue was super funny and it stays that way throughout the film. I think the writing and the editing are really the strong points of the film. Uh, there's certain... I, I mean, there's like line deliveries and, and like written gags that are, you know, had the whole audience in splits when I was watching it. Uh, expert cuts, which which is what I thought like really mimicked the style of a Twitter thread well uh, because of the kind of short chunks of information mm-hmm. and this like kind of instant serialization. And really the 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 thing that it really captures beautifully is like in these twitter beefs which have become very <laughs> pervasive in pop culture right now there's always like multiple versions of a story right and and there's like some uh, currency to whoever tweets it first and then there's other versions and something bravo said in the q and a was she wanted to capture how women's and especially black women's um stories are often questioned like their truth is often questioned and this is something that has happened with the story and there's a particular moment where just briefly she switches perspective to Riley Keough's character story and it like illustrates the racial um just like the racism and the way it affects our perspective perception of reality and so I thought like all of that was done really well and it just made for this wild ride where you just could not see what was coming next. At the same time, I think, and I was saying this to you guys earlier, I ended up seeing sort of three movies back to back today which feature violence against women, including Never Rarely, in, in different ways. And so I was also really on edge throughout this movie because there is a lot of um, violence or the threat of violence. And the movie's always teetering between menace and like just laugh out loud comedy. And that's, I think, one of its accomplishments is that it's managing to be like be on that knife edge all the way through. And it's like genuinely provocative and it's exciting to see something genuinely provocative and not just kind of provocative in those safe hashtag friendly ways um but at the same time i just i I also felt extremely uncomfortable because those that violence is never fully resolved and it remains sort of light throughout and it did i was thinking about this and it did bother me that zola the main character kind of remains gets really passive kind of Mm -hmm. by the end of the movie and and the movie just ends with her having like lost all agency really like midway through the movie it's like she loses all control of what's happening and i think that left a a a certain distaste in my mouth but i i I think i'm still figuring out how i feel about the film i mean i wonder if some of that kind of comes from the source material or the format of it because i mean the the sort part of the you know the viral sort of twitter thread like a lot of the nature of those is like this is about like this crazy shit that happened to me, but not this crazy shit that I did, you know? So like so right. much of this movie mm-hmm. is like, um, Riley Keough or, or Coleman Domingo who plays this, um, I guess, I guess he's basically a pimp. I mean, it's sort yeah. of like, um, slash criminal who will like inexplicably like switch into like a Jamaican accent for when he's trying to intimidate people and then drop out of it. Uh, so Nicholas really Braun, <laughs> um, successions, uh, cousin Greg, um, plays, <laughs> 
Riley Keough's uh, sort of boyfriend, although it's not clear that she... Plays a role made for him, by the way. He's so perfectly cast in it. Like... (laughs) It's like Greg the Egg, but like in a different universe. And then so often they're just doing this like insane stuff and the camera will just cut back to Taylor Page with this like look on her face like, what the fuck are you people doing? Um, And her face, the faces she makes are so perfect. I mean, she really plays that role to perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Get your copy of our January, February 2020 issue of Film Comment featuring our best of the decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Garish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our best of the year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Yeah, I mean, that's that the knife's edge, and it's it's true. I mean, it's, it's a movie that was darker than I had anticipated it would be, but at the same time seemed to have trouble really... I don't know, dealing with that darkness in, in any in any satisfying way. And true, that could be partly its source material. And, you know, when you flip through t- Twitter is like notoriously a kind of cruel wasteland, <laughs> you know, where people are just kind of constantly thrown to the wolves, throwing themselves to the wolves, what being one of the wolves. Um, and, and where people like love consuming crazy shit like people love consuming yeah. quote unquote drama even when that drama is really, really disturbing yeah. and uh, with a sense of detachment right. as well and that's something that's kind of disturbing about this movie I think and the passivity of Zola characters is, uh, is, is part of it but I, I did feel like the movie itself had a, had a I think it leaned a little too much into that detachment um, and it I, I, yeah I think that whatever it would mean to adapt a Twitter thread, I think it, it, it needs a bit more of a critical faculty or, or a bit more of some infusion of, of the humanity or something. Um, I mean, it's very clever. It's very, you know, um, you know, funny at many times. Um, um, and it's, you know, arguably you could just consider it all a kind of, you know, economic and racial satire piece um but yeah it did leave a, a strange taste for, for for me right i mean i think it's i mean it is uh, like i i you use the word red and i'm like i can't i mean that's just like i just not a word i word i try like very hard not to use about movies because it just always feels like it should be on a poster for some piece of crap but it's like that's what this movie is i mean literally and figuratively, it's just this like crazy ride. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the the sort of loopiness of kind of like some early like Jim Jarmusch movies. Uh, those um, there's a, something maybe just a very small dash of like Tarantino in the sort of like abrupt like violent outbursts. Um, you know, so I like enjoyed the hell out of it in a lot of ways. But there are those these, these moments that you're mentioning, and I guess what's I don't object to like 
so the movie's sort of getting chocolate in my peanut butter in that way, but it's that they don't sort of seem to stick or or accumulate. Like there's a moment um, near the end of the thread um, where they're sort of they're basically kind of re-ripping off people who are trying to rip them off, and they were, were they were holding them at gunpoint. Um, and while they're holding them at at, at gunpoint, um, this one man just like like uh, sticks his hand down like uh, Taylor Page's pants, and like she's. A stripper so it's probably not the first time like a strange man has done that but she's like being sexually assaulted and the movie just kind of forgets about it and um, that happens several times yeah. those sorts of things and that's what kind of it was really hard for me to bounce back from those scenes to then again into something that was uh, ridiculous and off culture and that happens to riley keogh's character actually very dramatically she undergoes something behind doors we don't know i mean some kind of violence and then she just kind of snaps out of it yeah that yeah that's the thing that kind of got me about the movie is that they're they're it's very willing to show you like really ridiculous stuff but really actually even more disturbing stuff that's what it keeps behind closed doors so it's you know i don't know that that i don't know about that and also like sorry but yeah but i mean i don't but you know at the same time i could think of plenty of semi-nihilistic movies from the 90s that maybe we gave a pass to. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, I do think like this is uh, one of, I guess, two A24 movies at the festival and they are, um, you know, very good at knowing their audience and knowing what there's an audience for. And I definitely could feel, I mean, just from the energy in the room and, and like, I mean, I think this is like, this movie is going to be a significant deal. Um, and I, I think there will, there are going to be some interesting conversations. Um, this, this may be one of those cases where the sort of Sundance reaction to a movie gets like parsed as much as the movie itself. In I don't think they've announced a release date yet, but like in several months from now. But that like the life of it's going to be an, an interesting thing to keep tabs on. Yeah, um, I'll just mention uh, since I did take the trouble of watching it, there are some points of comparison with Spree, um, which is, I mean, just unfathomably kind of uh, nihilistic in, in its dramatization of like uh, re- kind of reducto ad absurdum of, of social media um, worship. It's a sounded like a Black Mirror episode. And so. Right. There you go. <laughs> in a word. So uh, that's Zola with a dash of spree. And let's talk about maybe movies that each of us have seen that maybe other people haven't seen. Um, uh I mean, I guess I can start with Boys State, which I'll just talk about briefly. I think this is a this is a really interesting documentary um, about a Texas. Uh, it's about like a I don't know annual Texas conference that brings together a bunch of uh, young men, um, and it's it's to form a kind of governing body or series of governing bodies. It's basically like training for being a politician. Um, so you have hundreds of of kids who are campaigning to be you know a, a district head or a governor um I'm, I'm you know i'm forgetting all the exact terms so you just you very quickly see who of these kids um are really good as, as political operators and, and who are who are not as much um and you know it is in the kind of in the format of a contest documentary so it it you know, it gives you two or three people to focus on um, and to cheer for or root against. And it's, you know, it's it's basically like a microcosm of a lot of the things we're facing in, in politics today. It effectively sets out a few character types. Uh, you know, one is kind of like a, a Bush family type who is, just seems to be born to wealth and, and, and to, you know, 
potential power, doesn't even seem too much very deeply interested in, in actually being elected in this in this student governing body, uh, but is sort of going along with it. Um, and then you have uh, another kid, I don't know, I call them kids, they're probably college students, I suppose, <clears throat> uh, who is, you know, trying to be a straight shooter and is asking everyone, you know, what issues they, you know, they, they think are important, um, just very diligent, very open-hearted type. Um, and then his kind of nemesis uh, is is this, you know, I don't know, some you know, Carl Rovian evil genius guy um, who you like first time you see him, you see him like kind of berating an, another, another guy and, and say, asking him, what's your position? The guy says freedom. And he says, freedom. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. And then ends up just running on that platform himself and then becoming like a Svengali for, for another candidate. Um, and this, this, this one guy really well articulates the kind of where we are now with uh you know the politics of insults uh and just that that kind of you know i don't know what the right word is for but just the the, the constant belittling of your opponent you know lie deny etc um and it's it's kind of stunning to to see it charted out so skillfully um and you know obviously it's very uh, very polished, um, but that's I, I, I accepted what it was doing because it, it just because it comes out in such a very clear portrait of, uh, you know, the 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 mostly the worst and some of the best of of American politics. So yeah, that's Boys State, um, a, a movie I was curious but also kind of dreading, but was very happily surprised by. Um, also on the documentary front, um, Devika, I think you saw Into the Deep, which was a charming, lighthearted look at, at deep sea fish, fish and, and the wonderful little glowing things they, they, they light their way with. Is that what it's about, I think? I, I wish. Oh, I truly sorry. wish because it, I just actually got out of that movie <laughs> and I'm still recovering from the many chills it sent down my spine. Um, it is... It's a documentary about the murder of the Swedish journalist Kim Wall by Danish inventor Peter Madsen. I think it, um, I think it took place in the murder took place in 2017, and um, was sort of. I, I, I'm sure most people have read about it just because it was this like crazy, gruesome uh, case, um, and so I was familiar with the outlines of the story. Um, but this documentary really not only provides more insight, it's also really, it, it, it's so fascinating because the director, Emma Sullivan, w started making a documentary about Madsen two years before the murder happened. So she started filming him in 2015, and she was just making a documentary about this inventor. Like, her, her documentary was like, oh, here's this crazy genius inventor, Danish inventor who uh, runs a you know, space lab with a bunch of unpaid volunteers and interns. And he's trying to send a rocket into space and he's just some maverick. Right. And then towards the and then two years later, suddenly it's like, oh, he's a psychopathic murderer. And that that becomes so interesting to see how it unfolds is because it charts that 
shift that both the director and the, all the people around Madsen, all his interns, these young uh, people, uh, college graduates, you know, uh, wanting to be part of this great experiment. Uh, people, there's some women who didn't know what to do with life. There's there's like an, uh, uh, his minister of propaganda, as she calls herself, basically like handled his PR and all that, who... Um, just kind of got tired with life, was in a dark place and joined his team because he's so inspiring and charismatic and it's an opportunity to be part of something larger than yourself. So it's like all that classic language that you see um, associated with these kinds of figures and then all of them coming to terms with not just the fact that they knew nothing about this man that they spent every day with, including the director, but also that like kind of contending with the idea that the very things they say are in the early footage, you know, about him being this mysterious and amazing leader figure, this crazy genius, how that actually feeds into, um, you know, these these kind of psychopathic tendencies. It feeds the ego of these kind of, these men, but it also allows, gives them uh, the... Uh, not uh, the audacity to think that they can pull these things off, right? And so I think that uh, that is a really um, relevant and sort of fascinating thing to see unfold up close, like psychologically. I thought that the it, direction is a little by the numbers. And obviously she has this amazing trove of footage from before and after the murder. And she follows the investigation all, all the way through um, there's a lot of footage of her, many interviews with Manson and filming him on site. But then she, uh, the shift, uh, the focus shifts to the people around him, how they're grappling with each revelation. The revelations are, I mean, they're crazy and horrible and, and really, uh, I mean, like really sadistic, terrible stuff. Um, and it's kind of just, it's aggra- aggressively scored. I don't know if the, the Park Avenue theater just has bad sound, but it's like, I don't know. It's a Netflix documentary. It feels very much like kind of like an in, information documentary in a, in many parts. And she cuts back and forth between this footage in a way that's confusing. I, I, I thought that there could be could, could have been something a little more creative done with it. But at the same time, you know, that back and forth uh, kind of jumping back and forth does allow you this like very clear picture of uh, these people's transformation and how they start uh, thinking about this guy, but also about themselves in the process. And I will just say this, that it ends with some of the interviews she filmed with him before the murder, which are just, I, I, I really just don't want to spoil it, especially because it'll be on Netflix, people will get to see it. It is chilling. It is like absolutely incredible that she got this on camera and that this exists and that this man then did these things. And she ends the documentary with that. Uh, with him just saying some stuff very casually into the camera, which takes on this completely new meaning now that everything's in the open. So, um, yeah, very revelatory. Yeah, you think you know someone. I I mean, that's the thing. You walk away with the most frightening takeaway from this documentary is that you could spend months and days around people and think you know them, and they could have this extremely deep cupboard of skeletons that you know you you were never aware of and that's that's really scary thing to walk away with at 11 p.m yeah yeah um well that's terrifying um well let's we, we should probably be wrapping up now but i wanted to give sam a chance to talk about 
a movie that he just saw. Uh, Jumbo. Jumbo. Um, Jumbo is the heartwarming story of the love affair um, between a uh, young uh, Belgian woman played by a uh, portrait of a lady on fires, Noemi Merlon, and um, the uh, ride at the uh, amusement park where she works. Um, <laughs> it is the uh, the debut feature of um, Zoe Wittek. Um, who's a, I believe, a Belgian in origin, um, although it seems from the intro she has not actually lived there very long. Um, she uh, came out of AFI, and the, the movie has like this very sort of assured um, visual style that's like almost sort of Spielbergian at times. Um, I knew the log line going in. I did not realize that the sort of uh, romance between these two entities, um, which eventually does turn um, somewhat carnal in nature, um, was going to be kind of reciprocal. So she is kind this of. This is the you best know, movie. I haven't seen it, yeah. but I. This is the best movie at this festival. Yeah, she's talking. <laughs> so she's talking to this, you know, uh, contraption, which is sort of like a tilt a whirl, um, and it starts sort of like, you know, like the earth shaking, and it's like blinking like lights at her and stuff, and eventually it's kind of whirling around, and it starts looking like the mothership in Close Encounters, um, you know. So there's. The, it, it it's it's sort of a confusing movie to process because it's so sort of visually assured. There's some really like lovely um, shots, not just in the sort of the cinematography, just like the way they're like conceived is really um, kind of smart and impressive. Um, and then just like on a script level, it just doesn't hang together in a lot of ways. It's sort of wildly inconsistent um, in, in ways that I found sort of hard to parse. There are parts of the movie that are um, sort of extremely sort of Cronenbergian or kind of uh, there's a lot of stuff involving motor oil that just sort of starts to get into like under the skin territory. Um, there are parts of it that are a little, are a little more of a, almost like sort of a domestic drama between Norme Merlin, who is, they, the movie's never sort of specific. She's just either on the spectrum or developmentally disabled or something, but, um, you know, still somewhat infantilized even though she's you know in her 20s somewhere i guess um has never like had a you know relationship or friends or really kind of the only relationship in her life seems to be with her mother um and then there's this uh, without sort of giving away the end of the ending of the movie i guess but then it sort of tries to resolve things in this very kind of upbeat way when like 20 minutes before then i was pretty sure like somebody was going to like abruptly be horrendously violent to someone else like it has this sort of like undercurrent of, of um menace you know where you feel like you could take a sort of really wild turn at some point and then it takes like the most safe like uninteresting turn at the end so that was kind of deeply unsatisfying um but it is you know it's so it's very much a first film in that way, it's got obviously some like wild ideas in it. It is purportedly based on a true story of some sort, which I know nothing about, but I'm going to do some um, significant Googling about at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it at least shows that, uh, you know, if you've only seen Nomi Merlin in um, Portrait of Living on Fire, that she has some other other uh, tricks up her sleeves, I guess, some other some other speeds at which she can uh, do things. Um so, you know, and, and she really kind of sells, I mean, she like commits to the bit uh, 
pretty extraordinarily. I mean, she is really like kind of, you know, making out with like the safety restraints on this like what? you know ride at point at some points <laughs> and blowing stuff. my mind. Yeah, so it's really um, her wow. her. It's kind of almost worth seeing just for her like <laughs> the gusto with which she takes this on all by itself. I think I'm, I think I'm making someone on an upper floor. <laughs> no, no, I think I, just, think I just made someone like 20 feet above us crack up with that. Uh, <laughs> maybe the safety restraints line. Um, but yeah, so um, I don't, I don't know what sort of. I don't believe this movie has distribution, and it, uh, you know, might be a difficult sell for a number of reasons. But if you do, uh, you know, get a chance to see it, perhaps at some other festival, um, hmm. I would advise you know slotting it into your schedule somewhere. There's a new meaning to the term amusement park. Um, sorry. Um, that's uh, that's I my my best I could do is like portrait of a lady on rides. So I yeah <laughs> I I was just thinking of that portrait of a lady on tilt a whirl. Yeah. Yes. Um. All right. Well, that has been uh, our latest feast of film. Um. We'll have plenty more to talk about. Uh. Among them, well, going around, what's one film each of us is looking forward to? You don't have to say anything about it. Just the title. I am looking forward to uh, Miranda July's Kajillionaire. Kajillionaire. Hmm. I'm also looking forward to that one and uh, Shirley, oh, Josephine yeah. Decker, and Kirsten Johnson, uh, her film Dick Johnson is Dead. Yes. Me all too. All coming up. Uh, you, you took the ones I was going to say, so there you go. <laughs> Um, but uh, that's all for this episode. So uh, tune in next time and be sure to subscribe because um, we'll have more coming down the pike, including uh, a filmmaker interview or two. Uh, so thanks for listening and thank you to both of our brilliant participants. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our best-of-the-decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.